episode four of season three, Marketing Sweats Friends. I am literally geeking out bringing you today's episode because this marketer is someone who has taught me most of what I know about all things research, content strategy, customer experience, and more. On this episode, we'll talk to Dan Eisens, a strategic consultant covering so many marketing disciplines. Dan is one of my unicorns, as you'll hear me call him on the show. He's truly one of a kind as he knows so much about so much. I found Dan during a conference workshop at Confab years ago. I was so that girl in the audience. It was a room of probably 50 marketers, and I found myself continuing to tap him on the shoulder, asking more and more questions. Truth be told, I didn't understand much of what he was teaching me at that time. He was explaining concepts like contextual inquiry and information architecture, things I just didn't do much back then. But you know that feeling at a conference where you're awakened to something you don't even know exists and you just know in your gut you're meant to do those things? Yeah, that was me. And Dan became the person to teach me. Since that day, Dan and I have partnered on countless initiatives for Symantle and our clients. And he's always the person I bring to the table when a client has a particularly hard problem to figure out. Again, I could go on and on all day about how smart this guy is, but also what a good friend he has become to me. He's a hidden gem and I'm so excited to introduce him to you. I could not be more geeked out to be talking to you today at one of my very dearest coworkers and closest friends. I would love for you to start just by telling our audience a little bit about your professional journey and maybe a little bit about you personally along the way and how you got into this biz. Sure. My journey has had many, many, many steps, as you well know. I started my career wanting to be a journalist. I wanted to cover politics and fires and pretty much anything that was kind of breaking news that affected people. And I think what I learned along the way doing that was that I was just really passionate about hearing people's stories. And I think it's translated really well to my digital life because as I started getting into digital, I was in newspapers for about four or five years right out of college. And then I started doing digital at a small business magazine in Detroit, Crane's Detroit Business. During that time, I became the web editor. So I had to help implement a content management system, which required me to learn a lot about information architecture and user experience and how people use websites, which you know anything about reading on the web versus reading on traditional analog formats. It's totally different. The way that their eyes can perceive things is different. The way that they scan things is different. So I got to start talking to people about how they do things on the web. And it got me really passionate about research. And again, it's just like journalism because people are telling you their story, that people are telling you their experience. And you get to take all that stuff down and help move it into a design process to something that they can use better. So it became a super big passion point. And then I kind of fell into agency land because... I got to combine my two loves, digital and journalism, together. I started doing digital magazines for a really great arm of Campbell Ewald Advertising out of Detroit. I was in their custom publishing group for a couple of years as an editor. So I worked on you know these great magazines that are part of the auto industry, which I'm super passionate about because I grew up in Detroit. Yeah, And I, I did these great things for Chevrolet, eventually started doing information architecture on Chevy.com. And then my career just kind of grew from there. And I started learning a lot more about research and a lot more about information architecture and CX techniques. And I eventually moved to Ford's agency and was an innovation director for them for a while, working on a vision team to help launch the future of Ford.com on a global scale. And So cool. It's been a fun bunch of professional yeah. stops. 
you are somebody that is like a hidden treasure, right? Like there's so many big content strategy gurus out in the world, many of which I'm going to try to get on my show eventually. But the depth at which you understand all of these disciplines and the breadth of experience you've had with different clients is something I know Samantha has benefited benefited extensively from. So we do consider you an extension of our team. I know you consider yourself a bit of a Samantha light too, having worked with us quite a bit over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. One thing I want, I'm curious about, because I don't know if I've ever asked you this, what is it that made you so interested in storytelling and writing? And what is it something personally about you that you think sort of drove that curiosity? You know, I think as a kid, I have one sibling. He's 15 months younger than me. And both my parents worked quite a bit. So it's not that I spent a ton of time alone. I had a lot of time to like really flex my imagination muscles. And I also have been raised by some really super strong women who are passionate about storytelling and writing. My grandmother encouraged me to write at a pretty young age, and I started getting into poetry around 13. So my creative writing actually started in poetry. Then I just became really interested in kind of listening to other people tell stories. And I would dig into really famous quotes at a pretty young age. And and I'd have, I think my love for storytelling really just grew out of a love for reading really early on. I would consume just about every book that somebody would give me. And that really grew and had to be fostered more when I had a move in high school. I moved my freshman year of high school. I had to move to a different high school and I wasn't allowed to participate in sports. So I ended up writing a lot. And a a teacher took me under his wing and taught me a lot about poetry I took an intro to journalism class and I was just hooked. That's and that's, that's really where it grew was that that one year of transition between my freshman year of high school and my sophomore year of high school, that everything was set into motion by that move, that which I initially hated, but really shaped my entire career. That's so cool. Because you're a big sports guru too, right? You- I am. Yeah, I love sports. I played soccer for a whole bunch of years and still run, still lift and, and do some things to keep myself healthy. But yeah, it was a passion point for a long time, but it shifted after that. I became much more academic. You mentioned working in the automotive industry. You didn't tell your full career trajectory there, but I think what's fascinating about you is you have lots of B2B and B2C experiences, and you sort of love living at that intersection the same way Samantha does of understanding what the B2C expectations are, but sort of like backwards engineering that into the B2B world. So tell us a little bit about your focus on customer experience and how you're helping some of your clients today with some of those meaty issues. I think that intersection of B2B and B2C is often the thing that's most ignored. And that's why I think I like it so much because it's the complex stuff that you have to figure out because it's not only just figuring out what that end consumer might be most passionate about, which is usually the physical product or the service that your client is working with. But it's also when you're working with somebody like Caterpillar or you're working with somebody like General Motors or Ford, they also have these really broad dealer networks and the experience isn't always paid off by the larger brand. They make the vehicle, but for a good chunk of the journey and a good chunk of that customer's experience with a brand is really defined by what happens on the secondary business side. And that's the side that often gets ignored. The larger corporation, you know, spends so much time developing a stellar product that they sometimes don't think about the rest of the funnel. And that's the stuff that makes me most excited because those are where the biggest friction points happen. And that's where loyalty is also kind of put into place. It's not just the final product. It's really that experience of getting there. So where I think my early career was really focused on designing really delightful experiences, as I did all these research projects and I talked to all these end consumers and eventually started talking to dealers and vendors who were working on these products or becoming integrated into the process, 
that's where I started to realize this is where all the awfulness is. Yeah. The awfulness of the experience is in the integration and it's in the fulfillment of the product piece itself. And that's where the biggest frustrations where it's like you could get around a bad website experience, but you can't get around a bad delivery of a service or product. Yeah. So that's the piece where I really started to focus on moving forward. And it's really where I sit the most today is I still do a lot of big content strategy projects, but for the most part, it's really working out like what are the broken parts of the process? Where are you having your biggest pain points for frustrated users? And those are the things that I really love to help organizations focus on and really think like, what should your intended outcomes be to help fix this part of the problem? I was talking to a season one interview participant, Jeff Bowman. He's now the chief digital officer at Carter Machinery, which is one of the Caterpillar dealers. Mm-hmm. And so he was telling me yesterday that, you know, it's great that we're working at this broad enterprise level with Caterpillar doing journey mapping. But when it comes down to where the rubber meets the road at the dealer point of service, understanding all the phases, steps, roles, and outcomes in the customer journey at a very granular operational level is kind of what his focus is so that they can ladder that back up into the corporate enterprise journey. So talk to us a little bit about when you've worked with these distribution arms and all these industries, how do you make it operational enough that the employees understand it? It becomes a service brand that people can champion and people get excited about. For me, the employees are never the big problem, right? The employees are the ones who are actually excited because they feel that pain every single day. They're on the forefront talking to these customers, talking to the consumers of their services and products that when you actually give them input on the process and you give them an opportunity to talk about those pain points, sometimes that's the first time that they're heard. And Mm -hmm. and that's not necessarily always a fault of a CEO or the executive leadership. It's just that they don't often have a forum to get those thoughts out. So when you give them input on that process and then you can help operationalize something that makes their job easier to do and and to better fulfill a customer's expectations. Usually the change management on the boots on the ground side doesn't necessarily take quite as long as it does than helping change the minds of those executives that have been there for a while or may already be married to a process from a previous role or company. The boots on the ground piece, it's easier for them to adopt it as long as they can have some influence over the process. So whenever I do this kind of work, a lot of that intake from those particular employees or those folks who are really in the mud every day working with customers, especially when you get into a dealer network or you get to a fulfillment of a hospital service or you're the loan officer at the bank, having all of those stories included in the bigger plan that you're moving forward with for change management or you're implementing from a CX perspective becomes a lot easier because they've had input into the process. So no matter what engagement I'm doing, that always has to be something that we sell through because it's the only way that you'll get it to actually work and to move into a place where you can start to measure the results. Your focus on research and sort of qualitatively seeking all those insights is something I wanted to dig into today. I met you actually when you were teaching me the process of contextual inquiry out in the field and understanding all those touch points. And so many of the business development efforts that I'm in day to day, Dan, I'm talking to CX strategists at organizations saying, we don't know how much to invest in understanding our internal touch points and how they impact the customer in the external touch points. And I know you've had all kinds of research initiatives that scale the gamut, right? Everything from proto personas to fully robust globally designed studies. You're talking to customers all over the world. How do you advise clients on that these days? in terms of where to start and what do you love about it? Why is it so important to you? The research is the most important piece for me because it gives you a place to start. 
right? Mm-hmm. Whether you're whether you start internally and you get that internal alignment across teams, or you're doing that first level of surveying or customer interviewing to understand what those end users want. The thing that scares most companies about research, and and whenever I go in to do an engagement with someone, is that the first thing I always say is don't feel paralyzed by trying to figure out which question you need to answer first, because all of them need to get answered eventually. Whether they're, they have zero experience in research or they've done a lot of research projects and don't feel like they've gotten a lot out of it. I always like to start as like, don't feel paralyzed by this. Let's focus on the questions that you need answered first. And if it's getting internal alignment, then we might start with something as simple as like, let's do an onion diagram and figure out who all the stakeholders are who have power to make change for this problem that you're working on. It's really starting with what are the outcomes that you intend to have happen, whether it's creating less friction in a process or selling more of your widgets and bobs, or you want to grow sales by 20% in fourth quarter. All of those are things that there are certain levers that you can start to pull on or certain changes that you can start to make that you can start to answer with a research question. And you need to understand what needs to change internally or externally. And then that helps provide direction on which research process you should go through first because a lot of research starts internal and then moves to the external pieces. Because if you don't, if you have too many internal blockers, you'll never be able to solve for that external problem. Let's go to intended outcomes because that's always a pain point for me every time you use that word. And I still believe in it, right? After spending so much time with you. But to be honest, clients struggle to define that or they have so many intended outcomes that they don't know how to prioritize them. How do you advise us on that? Whenever I say intended outcomes, I think it gets scary because people always then immediately think of their internal processes. And when you get to a certain level, especially at larger companies, you have these performance goals as an individual. And when you're working with clients, and especially in the type of work that you and I do, you might not have access to that broader executive level set of things. And those goals cascade down as a waterfall process, right? It's sometimes that's a broken part of an organization where the company's goals are so broad that you can't even put a tactic to it. Like, oh, we want to we want to double in size by 2020. Sure. It's, it's a great goal, right? We all want to be able to grow and see our business grow, but it doesn't give the people below those top level folks a lot of direction on how to do it. There's lots of ways you can grow. It could be new leads that that turn into, into capture. So where I like to start with intended outcomes is start small in a test place that you know that you can affect. Bring it down to that micro level because that intended outcome could be just a change of behavior. Think about something as simple as support content and what that would mean to the bottom line of a business. If I have 20% less call center calls, what does that mean to the bottom line of my revenue? If I can improve the was this helpful rating on my support article by 60%, what does that mean to revenue? Start small with your intended outcomes, but always ladder them back to the bigger goals of the organization. And then try and remove yourself from your own managerial defined goals. Like these are the things that we want you to do this year. That's not the place to start. And I unfortunately, that's where a lot of folks start because you want to hit that bonus number or you want to be able to show that you have met all your performance goals for the year. It's asking that person to separate themselves from what their personal goals are and what they've been delivered and thinking more broadly about the organization as a whole. And when we make that boat rise, we all rise.
you have a process for this, right? You call it impact mapping. Even if you have an organization or a leader that says it's about growth, right? And they can't really put their finger on what that growth is. Being able to figure out which levers are going to drive that growth the most and sort of having people almost bet on that is something that you help organizations do, right? So with impact mapping, it's a technique that I actually learned from a guy named Scott Selhorst, who's over at Leading Agile. Really smart, smart guy. This process has been used in engineering practices for a really long time as, as far as product development goes. It helps you to focus on which features or enhancements or things that we do will bring the most benefit to the business and the greatest benefit to the customer. And it's usually about making something suck less <laughs> or making something really exceptional and delightful for the customer. You take that practice and you bring it across a marketing organization or you bring it into your customer experience practice, the same sort of principles are, are there. The goal is really to list all those broad level organizational goals to the left side of your map and then make it granularly more and more specific so that you can say who in the organization has influence over this piece of the process to benefit this customer and then what behavior needs to change to make those things happen. So it thinks a lot about behaviors as far as that impact mapping process goes. But what the importance of hedging your bets on what's most important is in brainstorming sessions, we can all come up with 30, 40 ideas that might work. But when you actually have to think about what's the investment take to make that happen, what's the perceived benefit and how sure are you that that will actually happen are the more important questions to answer. So often in brainstorming, we get stuck with generating great ideas and then we all think, oh, that's an awesome idea. But we don't necessarily think about all the risks it takes to putting that idea into play or the costs to the organization for the perceived benefit that it means to the customer. Yeah, we can make something super delightful, super slick, super sexy, but if it's not going to translate to dollars earned or efficiencies created, it's probably not worth investing in. This is so near and dear to my heart right now. The past two days, actually, Symantle has been going through this process for ourselves. So we've defined... I know it's so scary and fun. Probably 10 or 15 things we could be doing, right? That could help our customer experience. We talked to our employees, we talked to our clients, and then we rank and scored those yesterday based on the financial benefit, the risk, all of those things, even just strategically where we want to focus as a company. So that whole head heart thing was at play in the two days of leadership discussion. But one of the questions that I have as an outcome of that is, you know, it's really easy to take one step outside of your core and make more money doing it. Right. Mm-hmm. So but then it's it's really hard to move way outside of your core and innovate beyond yeah. where you are today. And I've been in client meetings with you where you blow up the paradigm sometimes almost just to play devil's advocate and say, why are we doing it that way? What if we did it this way? How would that change customer understanding of who we are as a brand or the way that we meet their expectations? So how do you move beyond the safety net and get people to really think differently to improve the customer experience? It's starting with a calculated risk. It's just like investing. Are you comfortable with a high-risk portfolio, a medium-risk portfolio, or a low-risk portfolio? As a company and as a leadership team, I think it's about understanding what's your comfort level with risk and what's your competition look like. So when I do those types of exercises and I'm advising a client or an agency on how much risk to take, We do a landscape analysis. We take a look at who else is out there. What are they doing? What's our biggest risk of not taking a risk? And then hedging your bets on that. It's another impact mapping question. Like what should our comfort and risk level be? And if it's high, then yeah, maybe take a bigger bet. But I always say start a little small. If you're for the first time getting outside yourself, pick something that you think will really drive the needle in one direction, take a chance on it. And if it doesn't work, then spool back to the other thing for a little while. 
sure. or spin out an arm of your organization to go and try something different, but put really big benchmarks against it. And, and that's really the important part is a lot of people will innovate without putting in the right benchmarks. This is especially problematic with startups because they'll get all this investment capital because something is really great about that product, but then they can't make it past that beta stage or that first version of the product that they put out there because they're either just innovating wildly and hoping they hit the next home run and they don't have a really good plan for growth and they burn out of cash really quickly and then in no time at all, they're gone. When you look at your impact map, for instance, and you have that measurable outcome, like we're going to change this behavior and this is our expected outcome and this is what success means to that expected outcome. If you can't hit that initial MVP, then you either need to tweak that process or you need to abandon it and innovate against something else. And that's where the hedging your bets on an impact map really comes in. Is like, how much risk are we opening ourselves up to based on the amount of time this will take, the number of resources this will take? And the education level it's going to require on the customer's end. Because a lot of things like you can have a great feature or you can have a great new product, but if it's too big of a disruption in the marketplace or it doesn't fit with your overall portfolio and what your customers know you to be, then it's not worth taking that risk. You have to figure out what is that right adjacency. Like Starbucks is great at that, right? Where it's like they tried the pod thing for a while and they pretty much abandoned that. And then they just started making consumer cups instead. They tried to do their own proprietary Nescafe thing. Seemed like a great adjacency, didn't do really well. I'm going to take a big step backwards, actually. So we've been talking a lot about goal setting and innovation and intended outcomes. But one of the things that I think so many of our B2B CX clients struggle with is deciding how to go about the persona and journey process. Mm -hmm. Personas has been a big buzzword for several years now, starting to die down a little bit. But you've taught me anyway that these foundational artifacts are so important to set you on the trajectory of your CX journey before you start activating a bunch of stuff. Because sometimes if you don't have that, you can kind of have to back up. Talk about your philosophy on how critical you think these things are still today versus just jumping in or trying to maybe do both at the same time. I don't think there's necessarily fault with doing both at the same time. There's definitely a benefit to speed to market, especially given the fickleness of customers today and that pent up demand for, I want it now, I want it yesterday. The reason that I think personas, even at a bare minimum, that a proto persona is so crucial is more for the benefit of the organization. It's less to the benefit of the end user customer because you can always fine-tune your content strategy or fine-tune your marketing mix as you go with all this kind of advancement in AI and machine learning and marketing automation, like that process is just getting easier and easier to be a little more nimble about changing on the fly. But when you're developing a product or you're developing a service or you're trying to change part of your organization, if you as a organization, including everybody down to the person turning the lights off at the end of the night doesn't line up on who you're trying to reach. You don't have that collective vision for who you are as an organization. And as a person who's heard a lot of people tell stories, having that sort of story that you can tell yourselves or having that person that you can hold up in a meeting, this is who we're talking about today. Even if you're chasing new business, you can't replace that. And and if you don't have those things level set and agreed upon as an organization or as a team, you're really missing out on an opportunity to move as one and move in the same direction and work more effectively together. That's why personas and journeys are helpful too, right? Understanding phases and touch points and priorities. 
I would say that the journey is something that I wouldn't necessarily avoid doing because I think that's the analysis of the process. Like you can probably get by not having a lot of personal work. I mean, I still think it's beneficial for the organization, but the journey piece is something I wouldn't skip because that's where you take the step back and you look at every piece of what you do as a business and you look for those friction zones, you look for those points of delight. And if you don't have a good sense of where those are, then you have a bigger chance to fail or have one piece of your process affect long-term loyalty and retainment of those customers. And that journey piece is something I wouldn't skip personally. I run into so many organizations that think they have personas, but really they have this loose segmentation strategy, right? So can you dig in and explain your process for developing personas and why they are different than segments? To kind of loosely define segmentation, I think that's when you have an understanding of what your base customer might look like based on some behaviors. When it comes to developing personas, it's more full spectrum where we start to understand what are their motivators, what are their pain points, what are their habits that might affect how they do business with us, whether that's consuming our content or what their preferences might be, whether they're a mobile banker or whether they're a branch banker or whether they're a drive-through banker. All those things make, make a big difference in the experience that you deliver to that banking customer, for instance, right? So when I do a persona, I like to at least interview five to six people from all of the folks who we think fit those segments, right? To use that bank example, you might say things that I know about my branch-based banking customers are that they skew a little older because they feel more comfortable seeing a teller that they know. They're always going to have their deposit slips pre-filled out versus a younger millennial banker or a digital banker is going to be mobile check deposit all the time. They're always using their phone to pay for things instead of having the traditional cards in their pocket. I would want to interview a certain cluster of people from each of those segments to make a broader sense of who that persona would be. And then you've heard me use the term Franken people, which I have stolen from my friend, Jessica DuVernay, who's down in New Mexico now. But stitching these interviews together to have a broader spectrum so that I get 80 to 85% coverage of all of those people and that I create the right content, the right experiences that meet all of those people's needs. Content strategy in our world, Dan, has become so complex, even in the past, I would say, 12 months, because we're learning about the concepts you've taught us about content modeling and content orchestration and tagging and taxonomy. How would you advise our B2B listeners to be thinking about content strategy if they don't necessarily have the data or technology infrastructure in place to do it well? I'd say that the first place any B2B should start looking at is understanding the mix of what they're grabbing from that parent organization and then what they feel that they need to produce for their own needs. And that mix from a content strategy standpoint, that's the biggest challenge for B2B is understanding like, what do I accept from a parent company versus how well do I know my own customers Are you talking about at the distribution level? Yeah. If we get down to distribution, I would say that standpoint. If it's just B2B and understanding as a business, what what does another business need to know? Then it gets into a little more of that technical side of content strategy where I want to understand what's the right structure? How do I deliver it differently from channel to channel? Those questions are, are the bigger things to answer. So if you don't have a large budget or you don't have marketing automation software, or you're not wanting to separate your content layer from your presentation layer, 
the best place to start is with sound analytics, right? Mm -hmm. So that's usually the biggest place where I say, learn something about analytics, really start to focus about what channels are most successful for you, what content resonates the most, pay attention to engagement rates, pay attention to clicks to calls to action from that specific piece of content, and then just do the math, the more old school traditional way where you track it in your spreadsheet or you track it on Google Analytics and start to adjust your content strategy based on some of those things. But I think that every B2B customer now is at the point where there's enough tool sets out there, whether you're using Salesforce email, there's enough intelligence built into almost every platform now where you can start to automate things a little bit if you just think about how to structure the content the right way. And you can find pieces of content that are traditionally really successful and that you could reuse over time. Mm -hmm. And just making sure that that's part of the mix every time you go to market, every time you're out there, every time you're having that conversation so that you're always on piece and everything else starts to feel like the experiment. And then you can take those learnings and adjust moving forward. Well, and just starting with a basic audit is Mm -hmm. such a helpful start. Do you understand what you have before you put it out in the universe? Especially for sites that are built on legacy platforms, you have a lot of old data that sometimes is still very relevant. So understanding what you have, understanding what works, and then putting that lens on it. Are we doing this to gain more customers? Are we doing this to help support research habits? And then bucketing that content appropriately is, is a good spot. I've referred to you as one of my unicorns because you know so many of these disciplines and how they intersect. One thing I think is so important is you mentioned learning websites. You play a lot in the space of information architecture and how content lays out on a page and how you work with designers on user experience and translating those requirements to technical and development teams. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you learned that and how that piece of what you do helps bring together so many disciplines to deliver on the customer experience in the digital channel? How content lives and is organized on websites, that was the foundational IA practice. So if there's somebody listening that's looking to learn some of those things, I would highly recommend Information Architecture for the World Wide Web by O'Reilly, Peter Morville. That was my Bible as a young 20-something learning to program for the first time, just to figure out how information is organized and how it could be mapped and constructed through taxonomy and things. But when it actually comes to assisting designers and UX folks around how to place content or how to structure content into different facets and things, that really comes from a combination of working closely with a client or a business unit within a client to understand what are the main points that you need this content to do and assigning goals for each specific content type. Once you have those goals in place, then you have your structure for that content and you break it down into its facets and little pieces and parts. I think I learned a ton of where to start putting things and just recognizing patterns from one vertical to the next, just from doing a lot of watching people consume content on websites and asking them questions about how. So you don't have to be a usability expert or a user research expert to ask questions when you watch somebody do things. Why did you click there? Why do you type it in? Why do you go to Google to type in a website that you already know? Understanding reasons why people do those things really helps you think about content in a different way. It's like, this person's never going to see this because 90% of the time they never land on the homepage of the website anyway. They're doing a Google search. And if I don't have good structured content, my page will never appear to them. Just understanding which key concepts to surface high up enough on the page or to put it under an H2 or an H1 sometimes is the difference between eyeballs or no eyeballs at all. I'm curious about measurement. We started our conversation on intended outcomes. How do we help an organization who maybe doesn't have a CX champion? 
or even a research function to set a metric in place to start to change mindset solely from sales and business outcomes, but also engagement levels and satisfaction and loyalty? How have you advised organizations with all kinds of different models and where do they start with this? The biggest place to start is either getting to a very simplistic survey metric where you get to overall satisfaction. I know net promoter score gets dogged on quite a bit, um, especially later on, but there's a lot of value in net promoter score because it's, it's honestly, it's the easiest thing for a small organization. So you think about a local community of CrossFit gyms or something like that, where you have several owned by the same owner, their best initial starting metric is going to be something simple like net promoter score. So it's just asking the question, how likely would you be to recommend us to a friend? And it's the one to 10. Starting there is is a great place to start, especially if you tag in that secondary ability to say, can I follow up with you about this? And then give them the secondary survey. I think starting with measurement starts with understanding a baseline sense of how satisfied are customers with your business. You see it all the time. And and this is really kind of a zero sum game for most large organizations where they're using things like the survey questions at the N4C or one of those other companies that do the intercept studies on websites all the time. The bigger companies still do that. How satisfied are you with the content? What was the experience like? It's just asking for that initial feedback and then applying that into research and some experiments through content that you can then measure, like, did I see a lift out of this or did I not? I'm willing to change the navigation on a website for a period of time if I get six out of 10 people that tell me that it would work better this way. Sometimes it's just taking those experiments and seeing where's the lift or where's the not lift and then going back to basic analytics and making those changes. When it comes into content effectiveness scoring and things like that, where you're really trying to get deeper knowledge into the content, that's where bigger research projects need to come into play. You need to actually have a small panel of users. And that's another great place to start to get 10 customers who are loyal and maybe two that have left you in the last couple of years to say, hey, can I pay you or can I give you free products to come back and give me your honest opinion so that you can start to get to those measurement goals, especially for smaller companies. That's an easy place to start where you can just have open, honest conversations, have that user tell you their story, and then you either make some assumptions or you don't. It's really hard to argue with voice of the customer. That's one thing we always say. It's easy to debate around the leadership table, but once you have that data, kind of hard to defend against it. I'm going to switch gears. One of the things that I value about our partnership with you, Dan, is that you always seem to be on the cutting edge of what other marketers are doing, both client side and agency side. And I know that's why you're passionate about keeping your independent business, because it does open your mind to the broadest exposure. What do you see in some of the big B2C brands, you know, working on right now? Because eventually it's going to come hit us B2B marketers as well. The two biggest things that I'm seeing either innovated around or talked around the big board tables are one is natural language search, which has been around for a while, but not necessarily as important until this year when now that 50% of the search market is voice. I mean, whether you have a personal assistant in your home or you're driving and you're asking Siri for something, you're seeing users. I'm really trying not to use the word user as much. (laughs) You see people asking longer questions and longer queries and so many of these things based in the form of questions. So I think you're going to see a lot of investment around creating a knowledge graph, which is mostly been proprietized by Google as saying like we have the knowledge graph because we're going in and tagging all these small individual pieces of content so that we can tell 
Google exactly what this means. The larger organizations are getting to that point where it's like, not only do we have to structure content, but we need to add semantics to everything because of voice. Uh, Because so many customers are asking really long, it's not just about keywords anymore. It's about phrases and how people talk. There needs to be better focus on thinking of different phraseology and regionalization of how people talk. So up here in Michigan, we call soda pop. Down in Georgia, everything's Coke. Those things have to come into account when you think about location and regionalization and all that stuff. So that's big one. The other one is this push towards, and I will get into a little my neuroscience geekery here, towards neural learning, where you're going to start to see content that is being fed into machine learning systems that starts to think about a user's actual thinking patterns and what their next steps might be and making additional content recommendations and changes to the website on the fly based on neural pathing and processing so that not only do you have a focus on natural language search, but you're trying to develop a customer experience that's going to be able to predict what their next move is going to be. We've seen a lot of this type of thinking in the past through brands like Target that their card data got so good that they predicted that a woman was pregnant. But this type of stuff is starting to happen where I can understand where you are in the buying process just based on two things that you clicked on the page or two words that you searched for. Most of the big auto guys can tell if you're in their consideration set for how long you've spent on their page now. And if you're in the top two or three, you have an exploding window of four days to get them into the dealership. Most of these industries, and you talk about automotive, and I'm sure the same is going to start to be true for CAT moving forward is it's not about their core product anymore. It's about the experience with the brand and the service that they can provide. Most automotive companies, you can see it in the reduction of models. Ford's not making any cars anymore. Who would have ever thought that that would be the thing moving forward? GM is refocusing itself as a transportation organization. It's not about just the end product. It's about what solution can I come up with as a company that's going to assist you to do things differently? How do we help you build and change the world? And that's where the predictive analytics need to start moving. That's where the search-based queries need to start thinking, what are the trends that you're seeing people talking into these little machines and asking these questions of their personal assistants? How can you start to capitalize on those things? And how can you be innovative enough with your business to hit a need that that you never would have considered in the past because you know that there's a pattern and a demand for it either in your local market or in your region or in your global footprint? Absolutely. I get the question a lot from my clients. What does the marketing team of the future look like? I didn't know if you had a perspective on this about what brands need to be insourcing and what they need to be outsourcing, and maybe even some of the roles and responsibilities that you see bubbling up in your work. If you're a larger brand or middleweight company or a larger company, you're going to want to invest in data science moving forward. The predictive analytics piece that we just mentioned, or understanding kind of the ever-changing knowledge graph and search trend that is powered by Google. So much of that rules the world around the ability to get a lead in the door because almost all of these research functions are, are happening at the voice level or at the search bar level. Most people don't start with going to automotive maker one, two, and three. It starts with search. So I think data science is a good place to invest for those size companies. If you're smaller, I would look at somebody who's just a really good analytics provider. And that way you can start pivoting there and then grow into the data science side. You need to start having either more of those folks in-house or pay an agency that does it really, really well. If you're not going to go with a customer experience agency, I'm seeing a lot more of these folks having CX designers 
or UX designers in-house that are going to optimize pieces of the process. Now, where that becomes difficult is that CX combines so many different trades and it's sort of lumped and CX feels like the buzzword of our time right now, where it's less about UX and UI. It's trying to capture all those things and put it under an umbrella again, instead of being overly specialized. The pool for really, really strong CX people is not as deep as it could be. And I think that's why you're seeing so many really great CX agencies out there, or you're seeing consultants really beating the drum. But if you can get a good CX person inside the organization, I think that's a great place to start. I don't see as many people focused on content as I used to. I still think that it's a super important part of the practice. I do think a lot of organizations, if they're not going to invest in content, need to find really solid content producers that can write to a very specific formula. Because of the way that we're moving towards structured content and you're moving towards personalized content, you need somebody who can write to an audience, who understands an audience and can tell a good story for each of those audiences, which gets us back to that whole persona discussion earlier. But yeah, I I see way less organizations actually bringing content authors on board and more of these strategy level people, which has been an interesting place to play as a strategist yourself, where you're almost having to sell another strategist on your strategy, which as you know, is not always an easy thing. (laughs) If you can help translate that B2B, B2C content strategy and, and then work closely with their CX strategist to maybe help fill the gaps through research. A lot of times these CX strategists will come in, they either don't have research chops or they're not as familiar with knowing which research to deploy for which situation. I've seen a lot of people with postings for UX researcher jobs in full transparency. That's the stuff that I get contacted the most for these days. Mm -hmm. There's starvation for data that feeds these CX strategies. And I don't think there's nearly enough people who know how to do good research or analyze that research in the world today. Oh, that is after my heart. You know, I love research. That's why I got into the business. I want to talk to the people who actually experience our brands. I can't leave a conversation with you without talking about the piece of your work that focuses on facilitation and training. Why is that so important to you? And how would you advise any given marketer out there to keep that at the forefront of their jobs day to day? I think the reason that it's so important to me is that I've seen it be the linchpin for failure of major investment and initiatives or brands entirely throughout a good chunk of my career. I've seen entire business units fold without good collaboration, without good buy-in and good facilitation. It's a major flaw of a lot of leadership styles to not be able to hear what the people who are actually doing the work are, are wanting to say or their input on that process. They have to believe in the vision of that company and they have to believe in the processes that are being put into place to help facilitate the relationships of those customers to make a long and lasting relationship. And if you don't move through those exercises where you give those folks an ability to impact the process or at least be a data point into what your customer experience strategy is, you're really missing the mark. So when I work with companies, especially if it's like a large matrix organization, I try and stress that. It's really intake that can either be done during the annual review process, or maybe it's a quarterly check-in where you facilitate those discussions and you have some key points that you're able to take in each time so that you have benchmarks for how you want to act as a customer experience organization. And then you take the voices who are the loudest or who have unique stories and have them generate something that becomes part of that report out so that they see themselves in the work and it 
then reinforces the process and the culture that you're trying to create and what's trying to be built. Yeah. I think that's why you and I are kindred spirits in a way, because I love that facilitative style of leadership that you have. And I would love to see all my clients have those people because not everybody has that skill set. And it's a difficult one to teach. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because I'm one of the owners. Symantle is an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We not only execute killer marketing campaigns, but we help organizations align around goals, audiences, messages, channels, and tactics to create more than campaigns, but programs that align to business strategies. Symantle has 40 years experience crafting positive, engaging customer experiences at every point in the consumer journey. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, head to samantle.com slash blog for more content. You'll find articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, webinars, and more to help you keep learning and growing right along with us. Well, in the few minutes I have left, I have two final questions for you. My first one is something I ask every podcast participant. What's a piece of advice or core truth that you live by that you might provide a bit of wisdom to us as we go about our day? Sure. There is a quote by, well, it's actually part of a poem by Herbert Heinlein, and it's called Specialization is for Insects. And that's how I live my life. You over-specialize in one area, you become squashable. To your point, like you see me as a unicorn. I just see myself as a lifelong learner. Part of why I loved journalism so much is because I learn something new every day. I talk to a new person and whether they're telling me this tragic story of how they lost their home in a house fire, or I'm learning how to ride a bull at a county fair when I get back to my early career. The thing that made me most passionate is it allows me to learn something new every day. And I never let myself get pigeonholed in one role for too long. That's kind of the code that I I live by. That's pretty Mm -hmm. awesome. What's a question that you have right now for maybe another marketer or somebody listening to ponder about their universe? I think the question, especially now during these times of uncertainty, is how do you see your interactions with customers changing as a result of so much more isolation? How are you learning from what's happening either in your area or if you're a global business? How has business changed around the globe? And how do you pivot or take advantage of those changes? That's what I'd start to love hearing from other marketers, especially if they have a small footprint. This has forced us into thinking in a very different way across the board. And I think it's going to forever change the way that we communicate with people and how we navigate our social experiences. I think the theme for the season is going to be something about looking back to look forward, right? I mean, we're all in this COVID space. We're coming up on 2021, a brand new year, trying to figure out who we're going to be in the future. Mm -hmm. And so to your point, I would encourage everybody listening to take that time to really learn what your customers expect and reflect on yourself and the brand you want to be. So such an exciting conversation. Dan, you know, you are one of my favorite humans on the planet. I am so excited about our partnership going forward. And of course, we'll keep in touch. I mean, I'm talking to you every day, every week. So thank you for being willing to bring your insight to our audience. Thank you so much for having me. I I love having long conversations with you. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Bye. Bye.
Okay, remember how I said I was geeking out? Could you not tell that I love that discussion? Dan and I share a particular kumbaya energy that you might only find a handful of times in your career. He'd laugh knowing I said this, but he drives me nuts as much as he inspires me. And I'm sure he'd say the same about me. But it's our friendship that gets us through the hard things. We believe in each other and we think we're better together. And that's what makes the work good and fun. If you want to reach Dan, you can start by reaching out to us here at Symantle. He works with us and for us, but he also works on his own. You can find him at danieleisens.com, where you can see some of his work and understand more about him. Thanks again for tuning in this season. On our next episode, I'll be talking to another amazing marketer, Chris Neeland, who will share what it means to be a cult brand. I think I'm going to have to find at least one brand marketer for every season. After all, it's my core love and Chris doesn't disappoint. If you want more information on our show, go to marketingsweats.com or samantle.com slash blog. You can subscribe to our show on any podcast platform. And if you do, please give me a review. I appreciate all of them. Talk soon, marketers. Marketers.